0: This is an ABC News special, COVID 19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. We are flattening the curve. New York Governor
1: Andrew Cuomo made that encouraging announcement, even as he conceded it's a small snapshot in time. The hospitalization rate is down, and if it continues, the system should stabilize. But there is an awfully high number of deaths. Another 779 people died in New York alone the last 24 hours. Both here and across the country, Hispanics and blacks are dying of coronavirus at a disproportionately high rate. The question is why? Martine Hackett is here from Hofstra University School of Health Sciences. What's behind these statistics?
2: So the disproportionate death rates, uh, due to coronavirus, uh, across the country, um, by race, ethnicity, where Blacks have a much higher rate of death than any other racial ethnic group is actually not too surprising. Unfortunately, the differences in um, mortality or death um, for many different diseases, not just coronavirus, exist with Blacks having uh, much higher um, fatality rates for things like uh, heart disease, breast cancer, and infant mortality. So the fact that there are higher um, fatality rates due to coronavirus um, for blacks in the United States is unfortunately not a surprise.
1: And how much of that has to do with access to care or inequalities when it comes to access to good health care?
2: So the reasons why these differences exist in um, poor health outcomes um, by race in the United States is not just biological. In fact, race is not a biological concept, right? And so the idea that there are these differences sort of points to the inequalities that exist in not only um, access to health care, but also the role that um, the environment that you live in, the role that the environment you live in plays on your health outcomes.
1: Beyond some of the factors, though, that would apply to any disease, not just coronavirus, why is it Blacks and Hispanics are dying at a disproportionately higher rate in the hospital? Is something happening when they get there?
2: So my thought about why um, Blacks and Hispanics might be dying at a higher rate might also have to do with the fact that they might be presenting at the hospital at a later stage of their disease, um, in part due to distrust. It could also be in part due to insurance coverage. But I also think that there's something to be said about the possibility that once they're in the hospital, once they're in the ICU, that they're might be some differential treatment that might be happening that could uh, impact the outcomes. And we know that all clinicians are trained to teach, to treat everybody equally. But um, when you are in a sort of crunch time situation, um, there are unconscious biases that people have that can come up that might um, be influencing why um, how people are treated. And, you know, not to mention the idea of language, um, if um, a, a language line needs to be used, that's going to be very difficult to be able to communicate to a patient. And so I think that the treatments within the hospital also need to be considered as a possibility as to why there might be a difference in the mortality rates for Blacks and Hispanics.
1: I wonder how many more service workers or essential workers are coming from these communities.
2: Absolutely. So um, in addition to sort of those bigger um, system reasons why we see that there are um, disproportionate distribution of health outcomes by race, there's certainly more, there are closer conditions as well as it relates to coronavirus. So thinking about people who are considered to be essential workers who can't um, work from home, that does disproportionately tend to be blacks and other minorities. In addition to housing and housing conditions and perhaps even more crowded housing conditions um, make it difficult for people to quarantine themselves within their homes if they are sick. And so certainly there are longer term reasons, more distal reasons, but also very close by reasons as to why the the rates are uh, much higher for death among blacks.
1: Martine Hackett from Hofstra University. No matter the race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status of a patient, Dying of coronavirus means dying alone. Doctors, nurses, and hospital chaplains are left to provide comfort and emotional support under trying circumstances. Rabbi Joanna Tract is a chaplain in South Florida at both JFK Medical Center in Atlantis and Palms West Hospital in Waxahachie. How has it been?
3: In the last three weeks, it has gone from regular life to COVID focus central. We try to help the doctors communicate to the families the status of the family member what's going on with them what decisions may need to be made and also we facilitate the ability of the families to talk to or to at least communicate with their family member that's in the hospital
1: it's difficult at any time for a, a chaplain to be at the bedside or or with the family of a dying patient but given the the, the rate of death with coronavirus What's that like now?
4: It
3: is overwhelming on the staff, and it is terrifying for the patients. ICU doctors and nurses are just beyond overwhelmed. They go in and watch this disease just take out person after person with very few wins. Ordinarily, they go in, they heal, they try to heal somebody, and they have a lot of wins, But with this disease, it is more infrequent in the ICU unit.
1: Is it a fear of dying alone or of caring for someone who may be dying alone? What is it that is sort of eating away spiritually at patients, at doctors, at nurses?
3: I think it's the sense of isolation and the amount of deaths. The image that I see the most is when a family member tells me that they came to the ER and they dropped off their loved one and they came in and immediately the love the patient was pulled aside because of COVID. The family is r- sort of ripped apart from their loved one and said, okay, goodbye. That might be the last time that they see them alive.
1: Oh, it's heartbreaking.
3: But there have been several times where I have coordinated between nurses and patients and family in order to make a time where the family can either speak with the patient, the patient may be intubated, may not be responsive, but the family at least can see their loved one. Some have made videos, short videos, where the nurse can go in, show the video to the patient, and give them a sense of connectedness, give them a sense of, my family's still there, my family loves me. There's a guilt that's involved with family that can't be there.
1: Rabbi Joanna Tracht with us from Florida. All of these circumstances were in some ways foreseen, and it turns out earlier than first known. ABC News has learned an American intelligence report in November outlined concern the coronavirus then sweeping through Wuhan, China, could become a cataclysmic event. ABC's chief investigative reporter Josh Margolin is with us. So U.S. intelligence officials were sounding the alarm about this contagion back around Thanksgiving. How specific did they get?
5: The warning was detailed and specific. It made it clear where it was. It made it clear that it was a health matter, an infectious disease kind of a thing. And
1: what happened with that bit of intelligence?
5: Well, the truth is we don't know what ultimately happened. We know what immediately happened was there were a series of briefings over the course of the next weeks. You know, obviously there was Thanksgiving, but there were a series of briefings across the government in December. What What's troubling, what's concerning, and what's really not known is how much real work went in at the highest levels to containing and mitigating a contagion if it came here.
1: Because it now seems, thanks to your reporting, that, that the United States knew that it was not only bad in Wuhan, but had the potential to be bad in the United States, and yet it wasn't for a couple of more months after that initial report in November, travel was curtailed.
5: Right. That, that's always the issue. You know, when you have some sort of uh, information concerning a possible contagion or a contagion somewhere around the world, especially halfway around the world, you wind up getting into the question of what could it do here? But the question is, how seriously was this taken at the highest levels? Because we know that the National Security Council was briefed. We know that the Pentagon knew about this from our reporting. So what was done at the highest levels?
1: Would this kind of intelligence report have set off alarms? Would it have made it to the top of the Pentagon food chain?
5: There's always a problem in dealing with intelligence because we don't necessarily get to see it. We never get to hear about it as it's going on. But this type of information from this agency saying what it said about a potentially cataclysmic event would necessarily have had to raise alarms throughout the intelligence community. And at the very least, lead other agencies like the CIA, like the National Security Agency, to get in the game and try to figure out what is happening.
1: ABC's Josh Margolin, and we're going to have more on this coming up with our Chief Justice Correspondent, Pierre Thomas. Stay with us. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special.
0: You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach.
6: And with me now for all the latest and to separate facts from the false is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. Dr. Ashton, there has been a lot of discussion this week about antibodies. What do we know about their function and their usefulness to us? So
7: let's do some mini medical school, Amy, so that people really understand how important antibodies are. These are proteins. And when we're exposed to an infection, what we know is that our body makes two types of antibodies. You can think of them as new and old. And in medicine, we call them IgM and IgG antibodies, the IgG reflecting like an older infection. Um, We also know, think of it with this acronym, SIR. So when we look for these antibodies, it tells us three things. S stands for, are you susceptible? Meaning, have you never been exposed to the infection? I stands for, are you infected? Because sometimes if you show the newer antibodies, that can indicate an active infection. And R means, have you recovered? Mm. So do you have both new and old antibodies. And last week, we do know that the FDA approved
6: the first antibody test for COVID-19. So that's some good news. Yeah, that is progress. Do we know right now how antibodies could be used as therapies for the virus? And does exposure to COVID-19 produce immunity?
7: Well, people may remember a, a week or two ago, we heard a lot of excitement about new antibody um treatment for people who are actively sick with COVID-19. That's the convalescent plasma. It's using those antibodies to try and treat people who are sick. But the other way we're going to be using antibodies, as I just said, is to test. And that is going to be really, really important. Um, One thing we think we know is that when you've been infected with COVID-19, we think
6: you will be protected from future infections. But right now, we don't know that for sure yet. All right. And there is obviously that hopefulness around those antibody treatments. Some are now approved by the FDA, but obviously it's still very early in this process. What do we need more information on in regards to those?
7: Well, in terms of the testing, there's still a lot we don't know. We don't know how accurate those antibody tests will be when they're rolled out mainstream, which is just starting to happen right now. We don't know exactly when those antibodies appear in our blood after or during an infection to this novel strain of coronavirus. We don't know how long they last, and we don't know what level of antibodies, we call them titers, will reflect or could reflect immune protection. So there's a lot we still need to learn. We also don't know, Amy, why other countries, South Korea, China, uh, Germany, and the UK have been using antibody testing
6: for some time now, and it's still not mainstream here. Yeah, that is a big question we need to answer. Dr. Jan Ashton, you'll be back with us yeah. in just a bit. Well, four weeks ago, Michigan saw their first case of COVID 19. Today, they are the third highest state with coronavirus cases. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer has been urging the people of her state to stay at home. She's joining us now for an update on how Michigan is coping. Welcome to you, Governor Whitmer. We want to begin with uh, what you've said. Michigan hospitals are three to six days away from running out of critical supplies can you give us an update on what you need
4: yeah so like states across the country we're fighting to get our hands on every n95 mask that we can every gown every glove every ventilator we know that we are on the upswing of what's going to be a steep curve here and that our apex is days maybe weeks away and so as we are confronting this and already have hospitals that are at capacity we know that this incredible need is 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 real Um, The fact that we've got three to six days is a huge improvement from where we were just a week and a half ago where we were literally worried about day to day. So we've made some progress. But the fact of the matter is we've got to get our hands on on more supplies to support our frontline superheroes who are risking their own health to take care of others.
6: Yeah, you know, you have to stay ahead of it. Yesterday, the Michigan Senate voted to extend your emergency declaration by 23 days. You asked for 70 days. How are you feeling about that extension?
4: You know, it's fine. It doesn't change any of the work that we're doing. I think um, I would hate to see the legislature come back in the height of the crisis. We know that we are ramping up. We're already uh, third in the country and we are starting our trajectory upward. If they come back in three weeks, it could be at the very height of the crisis. And that's contrary to all the medical professionals advice. But I don't control the legislature. I work with them and that's their choice. But we're going to continue to forge ahead. To protect Michiganders.
6: All right. In terms of protecting Michiganders this week, your state will begin posting data on the number of people who have recovered. But and this is pretty alarming. There are reports that say in Michigan, African-Americans represent nearly 40 percent of coronavirus deaths, but only make up 14 percent of the population. How can that information help you in your fight against the virus?
4: Well, I think it's really important for people to know how serious this is and that this virus preys on historic inequities. And that's a fact of what is not just true in Michigan, but is true across the United States of America. What we're seeing in Illinois and Louisiana is much the same. We are the few states that are releasing this kind of data, but by and large, I think everyone needs to so that we as a country can focus on leveling the barriers to equitable opportunities for health care, for jobs that you can raise a family on, for Uh, education. And I think that this is bringing up a mirror to who we are in the United States and the real economic challenges that we have in terms of making sure that there's real equitable opportunity in this country. We have to reach out and protect uh, all people in my state, but we have to focus on the African-American community, obviously, because this is ravaging um, all people, but uniquely harmful for people that have had historical inequities.
6: Oh, it's so important indeed. Now, the way the federal government res- responds to a crisis like this, also very important. We are in an election year. Joe Biden recently mentioned you are one of the women he is considering as his
4: running mate in his bid for the White House. Your response to that? Well, you know what? I am so focused on COVID-19. We've lost uh, over 800 Michiganders in the last few weeks. We know that we're going to lose more. That is... Every ounce of energy I have is going into protecting the people of my state.
6: Well, we thank you and applaud you for your leadership during these times. Governor Whitmore, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you, Amy. Stay
6: well. Thanks. An ABC News investigation in partnership with our own stations has uncovered sobering details about how COVID-19 may have spread so rapidly and so broadly across the United States. Joining me now to go over this newly uncovered data is ABC News Chief Justice Correspondent Pierre Thomas. Pierre, thanks for joining us. Your team has been tracking how COVID-19 might have entered here at such an alarming and sweeping pace Flights bringing in thousands of people from hotspot countries. Talk about what you've learned.
8: Amy, we've been looking at passenger data and flight information, and the numbers are pretty remarkable. The data suggests that by the time President Trump placed travel restrictions on China on February 2nd, the damage had likely already been done. Amy, between December and the beginning of February, a time when we know the virus was spreading throughout China and it jumped to Europe, more than three million passengers entered the U.S. from hotspot countries like China, Italy, Spain, and Great Britain. 1.5 million of those passengers were Americans returning home. We're talking thousands of flights from just China alone, with direct routes to at least 20 US cities, including Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Seattle, Detroit, and Washington DC. Among those flights, 50 of them came directly from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak is believed to have started, Amy.
6: Wow, those numbers are sobering indeed. So talk about what the bottom line is here. What is the takeaway from this data?
8: I mean, medical experts tell us that the data shows that COVID-19, a highly contagious virus, was able to span the globe, in some cases in a matter of just hours. While we can't say for certain how many people were infected, Medical experts we spoke to say the evidence suggests that some of those passengers were carriers of the virus. And once it began circulating in China because of all the international flights in and out of that country, it was like jet fuel that propelled the virus abroad at an alarming speed. It raises extraordinary implications for how we deal with infectious diseases in the future, particularly those originating in heavily traveled countries, Amy.
6: Yeah. And uh, there is an underlying factor at play here, or at least there seems to be uh, when you look at the data about how COVID-19 made its transmission from these hotspot countries.
8: That's right. The main factor is that so many infected people are believed to be asymptomatic. They travel to their respective countries, back to their homes, not feeling that sick, not enough to slow them down, really. People kept moving. And, Amy, the evidence suggests that some of the frontline airport workers were impacted by the flow of the virus as well. More than 300 Customs and Border Protection personnel and TSA workers have tested positive at major U.S. airports and other facilities in hotspot areas like New York. New Jersey and L.A.
6: Pierre Thomas, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate all that information. There is much more ahead right here on What You Need to Know. Dr. Jen Ashton with answers to your questions, plus keeping the faith in these difficult times at one of the most sacred weeks of the year. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know Once again, here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach.
6: Time now for some answers to so many of your great questions that continue to come in about this COVID-19 outbreak. And we have Dr. Jen Ashton, as always, here to answer those questions. So Dr. Jen, I'll begin with the first one. They ask, I have been self-quarantined at my apartment For 14 days, only outside solo with zero symptoms, is it safe to spend time with my parents, do my laundry at their house, and go food shopping for them? Big question for a lot of people.
7: Absolutely, and they're doing the right thing. They're self-quarantining, they're staying away, social distancing, but here's the issue. If that person just went from their home to visit their parents, the risk would be exceedingly low. I would say that I would call that as safe as possible in the setting of this pandemic. But if they go run an errand for their parents, if they go food shopping for their parents, then, of course, even with these protective measures, face covering, hand washing, six feet apart, etc., it's still possible that they could be exposed And then if they keep doing this, going to visit their parents, expose their parents. So it's as low risk as it could be, but it's
6: not zero once they start running errands. All right. Next question. I had the pneumonia vaccine probably five or six years ago, and you only need to have it once as far as I know. Will that help prevent pneumonia? Should I contract the coronavirus? Would it help to make the pneumonia less as if I didn't have it?
7: Yeah, this was one of the best questions I've been getting, Amy. So um, what this person's asking about is that pneumococcal vaccine, it's called Pneumovax. There are two of them that are recommended for all adults over the age of 65. It prevents a certain type of bacterial pneumonia. It's not active against the viral pneumonia that this new strain of coronavirus causes. And it's not yet known whether someone who's had that vaccine has a lower chance of getting a secondary bacterial pneumonia if they get infected with COVID-19. So too early to tell, but that vaccine is really, really important to lower someone's risk of this community-acquired pneumonia.
6: All right. I am really interested in this next question because I was out on a you know very remote running path, but I did see people running with masks on. And so the next question is, I live in a suburb. Do you recommend wearing a mask when going out to just take a walk around the neighborhood? First of all, Amy, I've seen your runs, and I I don't even see an animal in sight. (laughs) It's so remote,
7: Um, (laughs) exactly. Um, But I think that when people are in the suburbs, it depends how many people is are on their walking path or jogging path. If you're constantly passing Mm -hmm. people, then yeah, you should probably use a, a cloth, you know, face shield of sorts. If you're not seeing another person then I, I don't think it's as important. But remember, there's no firm data about this uh, maneuver of covering our face. It's just kind of you know common sense in the setting
6: of this pandemic to protect others. Yeah, common sense. That makes sense. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, always with the correct and great answers for all of us. You can submit your <laughs> questions to Dr. Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Next to the Passover observances beginning tonight, ABC's Terry Moran has this snapshot of how one local faith community is rallying during the global crisis.
9: In a world where so much human contact has been cut off, the Jewish community in Baltimore, like so many communities, is finding ways to stick together and keep the faith. Maybe we should hit them with some and Coggle. The local business leader had a proposal to help both a struggling business and those on the front line.
10: His idea was is to feed the staff in the hospital, in Sinai Hospital, who are working now over time on our behalf to keep us
9: safe. And for those frontline healthcare workers, lunch is served. It's vegetarian! <laughs> you see the best and worst of people in difficult times, and I could say we are privileged that we are truly as a community seeing the best of people. The coronavirus pandemic shut down Rabbi Silber's synagogue, but not his community. You feel that this is a moment... You have to reinvent what you do. Our religion always teaches us that no matter what the circumstances, adapt, reinvent, and then do something spectacular. Sometimes the spectacular happens in seemingly ordinary ways, in shopping carts even. Oh, I found it. Volunteer shoppers, mostly younger. Six gold delicious. Let's do it. Getting the groceries for older members of the community and the medically vulnerable. But life goes on even during a pandemic and for so many Jewish boys that means a bar mitzvah, a joyous coming of age ritual.
3: My original bar mitzvah was
9: supposed to be at the shop, which is a party room. Instead, it took place on Zoom, the video conferencing platform. Hundreds of people showed up. Rabbi Silber presided from his home. And it was plenty fun. When he finished... Everyone started dancing. I was sitting with my two sons in my study, and we, st- we held hands and we started dancing. And everyone started dancing. May we all be dancing together soon. Terry Moran, ABC News.
6: And we thank Terry Moran for that report. And as Passover celebrations start and quarantines continue, many of us are marking ancient traditions in a brand new way. One faith leader says that can actually be a good thing. Senior rabbi of Beth El Synagogue in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, Rabbi Avi Olitsky, is here with more on that. And welcome, rabbi. You recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about how this pandemic is inspiring you to find, yes, new ways to practice your Shabbat. So tell us how you're coming together as a congregation during these times.
11: Thanks, Amy. You know, it's quite a challenge. We always think about technology as a distraction and a burden. But for us in our community, it's really been a savior in a way because we've been able to come together for worship services, for study groups, for pastoral care sessions, for meetings, for Morning gatherings like Shiva rituals and Shiva prayer services, and it's been really uh, eye opening and comforting.
6: Yeah, we know Passover begins this evening. It's a holiday that so many people associate with gathering together for a meal, being with friends and family, and even inviting strangers in as well. This year, obviously, will be much different, but you think there are some positives that can come out of all of this?
11: I, I do indeed. You know, this idea of Passover, like you said, is about wide, robust tables with people that you might not obviously welcome into your home or regularly welcome into your home. But this year, there are going to be so many more people gathered into our homes using platforms like Zoom and other meeting platforms, specifically because those infirm or uh, unable to travel or who can't afford to make the trip or the time doesn't afford them to make the trip This is going to be one of those years where we actually do get to gather, even with an iPad prompt on a chair or with the young children seeing their cousins from miles away because they can't make it. Our seders this year are going to be that much more joyful, even if we don't anticipate it that way.
6: Rabbi Avi Olitsky, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate those calming words and happy Passover to you
11: and yours. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
6: Coming up next right here, when we come back, Cracking Cabin Fever. Players gotta play. Going from the court to the video game screen, the pros' new playground, and it's all for a good cause. And then the music makers lending a helping hand to the homeless. Stay with us.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
6: Dr. Jen Ashton is joining us now. And Dr. Jen, we've said over and over that COVID-19 does not discriminate. Everyone is susceptible to contracting this virus. And yet when we see the death rates and that data coming in, there are some significant disparities among gender and even more specifically race. Exactly, Amy. And that's where a lot of the focus is shifting today and this week
7: Uh, You know, we know that disease does not affect all races, all ethnicities, all ages, both sexes. Similarly, uh, there are even, in some cases, religious differences, certain religious groups that are more prone to certain diseases. So it's not a surprise that coronavirus, and particularly COVID-19, is hitting different racial and ethnic groups, different age groups. And there is a surprise with it hitting men greater. But we need to look at that and tease that out. There are some theories as to why um, African-American and Latinos seem to be dying at greater rates of COVID-19. One of those involves, yes, pre-existing comorbidities, as we call them, that are more likely to occur in African-American and Latinos, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. But there are also social factors that have to be looked at, more likely to have difficulty getting tested and therefore early diagnosis and less likely to have good quality health care or health insurance. So all of these represent targets for not just treatment and testing, but
6: prevention. Dr. Jen, thank you so much. And you can com- submit your questions yeah. to Dr. Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. It is so encouraging to see how some singers and musicians are going that extra mile to help out during this quarantine time. Every effort makes a big difference. And joining us now, all-time low frontman Alex Gaskarth, who has been keeping very busy these days. Alex, just yesterday, you joined forces with Billboard to help raise funds for the homeless during these times. Tell us how you got involved.
10: Yeah, well, they reached out. They've been doing this with a a number of artists, and um, they had a long list of causes, that all of which were great, um, and they reached out to see if we'd want to be a part of it. You know, it's, it's a no-brainer. We, we had to do it.
6: Well, we certainly appreciate. I know so many people are benefiting from that. And we're very excited to let everyone know out there right now, you're going to sing for us today. So let's get right to it. From the all-new album, Wake Up Sunshine, ladies and gentlemen, Alex Gaskarth with Sleeping In.
8: Thank you. <laughs>
10: Tuesday, felt like a Friday night to me, never want to leave this bed, tell me that you got nowhere to be, can we stay all day, lay low in our lazy luxury, sex in a rosé days, all day It's a real good thing, just like that, there you go making it hard to stay on track, got things to got work but we fall right back it's a bet like it's all just a game but we can't help that and we can't help that so we fall right back just like that if I said I want you body, would you hold it against me seven in the morning wanna listen to Britney anything you wanna baby that's okay with me now Closing up the curtains while you call out of work now Turning up my phone while you take up your shirt now Waste another day, another night, another weekend We don't sleep, but we like sleeping in Now every day's a holiday Stay hot when it's cold outside, you know Have a left your place in days Postmates and dirty laundry just like that On track we got things to do, you got work But we fall right back In the bed like it's all just a game But we can't help that We can't help that So we fall right back Just like that If I said I want your body, would you hold it against me? Seven in the morning, wanna listen to Britney Anything you want baby, that's okay so with me now Closing up the curtains while you call out of work now Turning up a phone away you take up your shirt now Waste another day, another night, another weekend We don't sleep, but we like sleeping in We like sleeping in If I said I want your body, would you hold it against me? Seven in the morning, wanna listen to Britney Anything you wanna, lady, that's okay with me now Closing up the curtains while you call out of work now. Turning up a phone while you take up your shirt now. Waste another day, another night, another weekend. Without sleep, but we like sleeping. I said I want your body, would you hold it against me? Seven in the morning, want to listen to Britney. Anything you want to, baby, that's okay with me now. Without sleep, but we like sleeping in. Thank you.
6: All right, sleeping in and doing good. Alex Gaskar, thank you so much for everything. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
6: Welcome back. Just because NBA players can't compete on the court doesn't mean they can't virtually. The NBA 2K tournament, $100,000 at stake for charity. Quarterfinals tomorrow night. So let's welcome the host of ESPN's The Jump, Rachel Nichols, and Cleveland Cavalier all-star Andre Drummond. Thank you both for being with us. And Andre, I know you advanced to the quarterfinals after winning your first NBA 2K round, 101-49. to How are you feeling heading into tomorrow's game?
12: Uh, You know, I feel good. It's a great game for me uh, playing against uh, DeMarcus. Great, great opponent, uh, but I had to get the win. Uh, Looking forward to playing Pat tomorrow. Uh, I know he's a tough opponent. He talks trash on and off the court and (laughs) virtually. (laughs) So uh, this should be a fun experience.
6: How are your trash talking skills? Are you going to uh, go into that? You know, for me,
12: night? I'm just going to let my I'm going to let my game speak. I'm not going to do <laughs> much talking. I'm going to let him do all the talking and uh, try to win the game.
6: I like that. I like that strategy. Rachel, talk a little bit about how important this competition is.
13: Well, for sports fans, they're binging old games the way most of the rest of us are binging old TV shows. So ESPN has been showing the 2015 Super Bowl or the. Uh, NBA Finals from 2016. The problem is, Amy, you know how those end. And sports (laughs) fans are dying to get their hands on sporting events where they don't know the outcome. You watch Star Wars, you know who's going to be the victor at the end of Star Wars. You know who's winning the NBA Finals from a past year. Watching these NBA 2K games, they are finally getting back to competition where they don't know what's going to happen, where guys like Andre can come out victorious. That is so much fun to just get a little whisk back to.
6: Yeah. And speaking of that, there are talks, Rachel, I understand, of the NBA and ESPN televising a horse competition involving several of the players who are in isolation, presumably using their at-home gym. So what would that mean for the league?
13: It would be great for the NBA. The NBA was really stopped at such a critical time. This was right before the NBA playoffs. So this is a way to stay connected to fans, to have those athletes and those personalities that are such a big part of the sport stay connected to fans. So when the league can start back up, they're going to hit the ground running going into their most critical time, the time they need those TV dollars, they need fans to tune in. So it just keeps those strings alive for people to be able to see what Andre
12: is
6: doing at home, stuff like
13: that. I was going to ask Andre, how's your horse game?
12: you know for me I haven't played horse in quite some time but (laughs) I would love to do it I would love to do it and uh you know see what I come up with
6: all right I'd love to see you do it too and uh, a lot of uncertainty obviously about when the NBA will come back I know that players are itching just like fans to to get back on the court are you prepared are your fellow players prepared to go straight into playoffs if if there is that moment
12: you know for me we're just trying to stay ready as best as we can you know it's not much we can do we can't really go into gyms to work on our games but a lot of guys have at-home things, like gym, like half courts or a bike or a treadmill anything like that to keep ourselves in shape. Uh, if we do come back, it would be interesting to, to start up again, but we're all athletes, and you know, it's our job, so I'm sure we'll come together and figure it out.
6: All right. Well, we certainly hope you do. Andre, Rachel, thank you both for joining us today. The thank NBA you. 2K Tournament continues tomorrow night at 7 Eastern on ESPN2, so check it out. And that's what you need to know for this Wednesday. Thank you for joining us. For Dr. Jen and all of us here at ABC News, I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening.
0: ABC News, honored, winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice.
7: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.